got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Joy Damiani. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode, we're talking with Rosa Del Duca, a writer, journalist, teacher, musician, and army veteran who chose to conscientiously object to the war on terror. I mean, the Iraq War is a textbook example of an illegal war and an unjust war. So it's not that I am just calling it one. I think everyone can agree on that by now. But first... If you love what you've been hearing on What the Folk, you now can love us with your money by donating whatever amount your heart desires via PayPal to whatthefolkpod at gmail.com. And also, please do continue showing your completely reciprocated affection by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribing on your platform of choice. And if you're feeling really generous, sharing us with a few people you know, or everyone you know, and why not also people you don't know? Hey, everyone is welcome in the What the Folk fam. And now, to get the episode started, here's a song by Rosa Del Duca's band, Hunters, off their album, We All Go Up the Mountain Alone Together. This is called Orion. After the war 
about the folk? Usually Sarah Baranowskis is joining us, but she unfortunately is not feeling well this time. And so she has entrusted me with talking with this episode's guest, Rosa Del Duca, a writer, journalist, teacher, and musician. She grew up a tomboy in rural Montana, where she joined the Army National Guard at 17. During her time in uniform, she became not only a conscientious objector, but a feminist and unlikely rebel. That tumultuous time is the focus of her award-winning memoir, Breaking Cadence, One Woman's War Against the War, from Ooligan Press 2019, and her companion podcast, Breaking Cadence, Insights from a Modern-Day Conscientious Objector. Rosa earned her MFA in creative writing from St. Mary's College of California. Her shorter creative work has been published in Calix, River Teeth, Cut Bank, Grain, The Los Angeles Review, and other literary magazines. When she's not writing creatively, Rosa is teaching or working as a freelance journalist and writer or playing music. While a solo singer-songwriter at the moment, Rosa founded the band Hunters with Will Decker in 2011. Over the course of five years, they put out three albums, White Lies, Tree Line, and We All Go Up the Mountain Alone Together. Her solo album is Love Letters. Rosa lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her writer, professor, and craftsman husband, Nicholas Leiter, and their two young children. Her website is rosadelduca.com. Welcome, Rosa Del Duca, to What the Folk. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I have to say, I'm feeling a little bit like out, out in the ocean here without Sarah to like kind of anchor me and give me permission to be super witchy. <laughs> <laughs> I give you permission to be super witchy. <laughs> yes, that's all I needed. I needed another woman to tell me it's fine to be witchy in this podcast. <laughs> so we always start out with our first question, which often is either the easiest or hardest, and I'll let you decide what it is, but how is your apocalypse going, Rosa Del Duca? Oh gosh, it, it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm feeling pretty burned out. I mean, I, re I remember when the initial lockdown came and I had so much motivation and energy because it was billed as two weeks, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the... <laughs> My kids' preschool shut down, and I had like a one and a half year old at that time. And I was like, "Of course, I am going to plan daily hikes, and we'll pass the time that way." And also, our house was ripped to shreds in um, this remodel that we were in the middle of, so we were crammed into our little mother-in-law unit out back. Um, so I was like, "We'll just spend, you know, three or four hours outside a day." All the playgrounds were closed, but. I so I I did we I dragged them on two weeks of hikes, and then it kept going and going and going, and we lost our childcare of course, and like kept going and going and going. So even though we're pulling out of it, uh, I'm feeling super super burnt out, but also super grateful for um, every yeah us pulling out out of it healthy. And only one person in our family died, and he was very elderly. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's a reality that a lot of us are in where we're just grateful if the person or people we lost were already, you know, getting close to their time. Um, well, you know, thank you for being real about that. You know, I think it's, there's a lot, a lot of pressure on all of us to like kind of be fine, even in a space of, of this, you know, and, and never ending, um, 
kind of, it's, it's kind of like a never ending deployment, really. Like I, I will tell you, like you didn't miss much. This is like deployment. <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting stop lost at the, at the end of every marker of like, well, at once everyone has access to the vaccines, then we can go yeah. back to normal. No, wait, wait, no. Once we, it just keeps moving. Like, well, what this next variant is even worse. So <laughs> Stop loss on the pandemic. <laughs> exactly. It really is. Like as about it was about two weeks in where I realized I was like, wow, it really does feel like everyone knows what it's like to be in the military now because like we have incompetent leadership that kind of low-key, high-key hates us. Um <laughs> we we don't know what's gonna happen at any given time. We're like super stressed out and um and maybe gonna die. And it's like there you go. There's your deployment in a nutshell. It, oh my gosh. That's <laughs> crazy to think about that you were drawing that parallel. Oh man. I'm so, so sorry. No, well, I, I it's, you know, again, like we all know um, how we normalize things, right? Like to me, it, it didn't seem that extreme, but um, you know, I feel like, so as I was, as I was driving back from the Bay um, this week, from my first gig since before the pandemic, I've been thinking, I was listening to your, to your audiobook. I was just thinking a lot about how, even though you didn't deploy and I did, um, we had very parallel, similar experiences with, um, with the military sort of just manipulating our best intentions and um, and feeding into our fears to keep us playing the game, and I, I think that actually is something that you know this pandemic is is doing too. So, I was wondering if you could if you could speak to your experience. Um, you know, <laughs> I told you that could be the easiest or the hardest first question. So the next one is, uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit about some of the thoughts you've been having around Veterans Day and the military um, and the way that that experience has impacted your, your thoughts around this, this day. Yeah, well, November is already a pretty charged month for me because I, at 17, I signed up my contract start date is November 20th. Mm. Um, so, a little backstory, I guess. I joined when I was 17, still in high school. My mom had to co-sign for me, and it was before 9-11. So, um, you know, I had tuned out all the recruiters that came through the high school until the National Guard, Guard gig came and billed it as a very part-time job, you know, like one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer. Um, that's, that's like 90% civilian, 10% soldier. And I, I would get 75% of my tuition paid for, which I was dying to go to college. I really, really wanted to go to college. And, um, you know, my family was broke. My mom had just divorced a total asshole um, who declared bankruptcy. So she had to declare bankruptcy because uh, he had like racked up all these this debt for buying tools for his dumb little workshop um, out back. <laughs> and, um, and my mom had warned me, you know, like, I, what do you, or do you want to go to college? Cause you know that I can't help pay for it. I'm, I'm really sorry. I can't, I can't even help you pay books. Um, so when he came in with that very sweet looking deal, plus the $6,000 signing bonus, which 
seems like they're going to fork that over when you sign the contract, but of course takes years to get. <laughs> um, I loved that, that opportunity. And, and now every Veterans Day, which shouldn't even be Veterans Day, should still be Armistice Day, a day that we celebrate peace. Oh, wow. Something that everyone could get behind. Peace. Mm-hmm. Celebrating peace. Peacemakers. The ends of wars instead of all of the the cannon fodder, fodder and the people who fight the wars, um, some of whom have done um, terrible things like and should not be called heroes and lumped into just like the warrior, veteran, savior, warship thing, which uh, is just um, a little twisted. So, yeah, like it's, it's an emotional day. And even my family used to say, think, you know, happy Veterans Day, you know, happy <laughs> Or, you know, thank the whole thank you for your service um, is just such a can of worms that, you know, it's not even worth getting into because, you know, that people who say that they mean well, but it just, yeah, it's a hard day, you know, just drudges up everything. Yeah, well, you really, I mean, you echo a lot of my thoughts on on all of this. And um, I think that as... um, as the years go by, more people are willing to have conversations about the complications of being a veteran. Um, the fact that it's not Armistice Day anymore um, is part of why it's so hard to talk about the dark side of Veterans Day or veterans in general. I'm curious what, you know, your personal experience and your relationship to being a veteran um, as a conscientious objector um, who didn't deploy, you know, I'm, you know, I know that you're just as much a veteran as anybody, as soon as you raise your right hand and you take the oath and you put on the uniform, you know, you're, you're a veteran of the military um, and being a veteran of a war is a whole different thing. So I'm just, I would like to know about your relationship with the identity of a veteran at this point in your life. Yeah, that's really interesting. For many years after I got out, I didn't consider myself a veteran. Um, I, When people said stuff like that, like, thank you for your service, or, oh, you're a veteran, I'd be like, no, I'm not a veteran. I didn't deploy and never went over um, I cut myself off completely from any other military members or veterans. Like I, I didn't, you know, I, I moved away from where I was drilling and I, my unit was so small and um, it wasn't like I was friends with these people. I mean, I had like kind of a mentor father figure guy that I still feel bad about. And I wonder what the heck he actually thought about me declaring myself a conscientious objector. Like I, I think he was forgiving and maybe understood, but I don't know. And so, and when I finally got out after, you know, just such a a roller coaster and I had to, I ended up hiring two lawyers to get out. And the last one, it was, you know, it was dicey. Like I was basically a wall and the military police could have come after me and thrown me in jail. And my lawyer then would have launched a habeas corpus case against the federal government because when they, the military denied my conscientious objector application, they didn't give a reason why they were denying me. But, but yeah, I just assumed across the board that all veterans hated me, whether they deployed or not. 
whether they were whatever political affiliation they were, I just assumed that they hated me because not only did I get out of deployment, you know, but, um, and a, a lot of people saw me as a traitor and, you know, like even civilians, a lot of civilians saw me as like just a mercenary wussy wimp person who snuck out of the military at the last minute. And, um, so yeah, something I hid for a long time. And, and then, and then I found about face and I was like, Oh, <laughs> there's other veterans who think like me. And yeah. they don't hate me. No. Yeah. That, that was a big, a big moment for me too. And back, back when I found them, they were called Iraq veterans against the war. So I was introduced, I was, you know, someone, told me, asked me, have you ever heard of Iraq veterans against the war? And I was like, well, I'm one of those. So where are they? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it was finding community, finding fellow dissenters who, you know, I, I didn't have the um, courage or conviction to conscientiously object. Although there were many times that I consciously thought of myself as a conscientious objector but the interesting thing with me is that I did really, I think, give in to some, a lot of that conditioning that you resisted where, you know, where I was like, well, I have to do this with my team. I have to, um, I can't let them down. I signed this contract. And I was even getting that, you know, from my parents, um, during, during deployment, calling them and being like, I can't do this anymore. And can you please just send a red cross message, um, that someone in our family is sick. (laughs) And they were like, Nope, you signed up for this. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, and so it's like, when you say civilians have that reaction, it's like, yeah, they do. Even, even my own family had that reaction. My own sister, actually in the first episode of my podcast, I interviewed my family members about kind of like thinking back when, what did they think of when I joined and what did they think when I declared myself a conscientious objector? Cause I asked them all to write letters of support for my case. And even after all those years, my sister still, she was just like, well, you, you signed a contract. You had to do what you said. And I was like, I signed a contract at 17 years old. Like she has a daughter who is now 15 and, you know, has changed her mind and um, thinks about it much differently, but I, it's just like, I was, I was a child. Like, you're really going to hold a mistake that a 17 year old makes against them for eight years, eight year contract. Which is really, and it's really your whole life, you know? Um, Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It totally changes you. I feel like, uh, yeah, it's something that I will never escape. Something that I'll always share with other people, even who went through boot camp. Like you said, like that experience, civilians will just never understand. Correct. Right. The conditioning process is the same for everyone, whether or not you go into combat. Um, And that is a thing that, you know, most civilians don't understand unless they have a close personal relationship with a veteran who tells them or an active duty military, you know, somebody who's in the military. Um, and, and that, that conditioning 
When you sign up to have your brain reshaped at the age of 17, you know, that's, I mean, that's what you're really doing when you sign that contract and you go through basic training. And um, the idea that in this nation, you can't buy a pack of cigarettes um, until after you can legally go to war um, is, I think, a really stark example of like just the lack of awareness people who criticize the things like the decision that you made or anybody who changes their mind about the military, um, you know, they just don't understand that this is, um, you know, this is, this is a choice that you, you're being subjected to that's being kind of forced on you before you're ready to it's, it's, you know, if you can't give, give consent to, um, you know, have sex with an adult, then you shouldn't be able to give consent to, um, to go to war with them (laughs) and to have them condition your brain. The parallels of how I feel about recruiters and how they don't belong in schools and how we protect these children from so many other things. Um, even like, you know, how sex offenders can't come within certain distance of schools. And I was just like, recruiters are in a way, child predators and they probably are also sex offenders let's be real <laughs> like <laughs> when you look at who ends up in the military like I feel like this conversation might take an even darker turn than if Sarah was here because <laughs> I, I, I tend to forget filters when I'm talking with other people who've been in the military and because you just normalize so much um, aggression so much misogyny so much of of the stuff that we are ostensibly trying to protect kids from and then we're like now you are totally but here welcome recruiters who are probably have questionable characters and are probably definitely traumatized come talk to the children and convince them to go through the thing that you just did And And um, here's the script that you follow that is full of falsehoods and rosy pictures and, and half truths and everything. But yeah, like you were saying, um, we protect teenagers from so much, you know, uh, yeah. Can't, can't drink yet for good reason. You know, the brain is still developing until 25. You can't rent a car until you're 25. Hmm, I wonder why that is. Yeah. Because you you can't rent a car until you're 25. <laughs> you can't rent a car till you're 25, but you can totally drive around in a Humvee with no body armor in a war zone. Fine. No bigs. Like that was the situation when we were both in, which such interesting parallels between both of our times in um in the military. I was in from 2002 to 2008. Um I went to basic training during the same period that you went to your second basic training which people who haven't read your book need to read it and they'll understand what I'm talking about. But yeah, that specific time in this nation um, was uh, (laughs) like, nobody knew what they were getting into. Nobody knew what we were getting into. So what, can you talk a little bit um, about your, you know, before we go all the way down into like the dark military rabbit hole, um, you wrote an incredible memoir and I would love to hear about your process and your, um, your inspiration for starting that and just how you 
how it has, um, how it's impacted you to do that work and, and what it's meant to you. Yeah. The, the process was, um, very, very long because, uh, well, at, at first I was really intimidated by nonfiction. I've always loved fiction and I, you know, read as a kid voraciously all fiction. Um, and I wanted to write fiction. And when I got into St. Mary's, it was in the fiction program. And I just didn't see myself writing any nonfiction because I couldn't, like, how could I time travel and, you know, record every conversation accurately and, like, get everything factually right um, until, you know, the instructors there. And my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was like, no, <laughs> it's about, you know, narrative honesty and, and the story's truth. Like you, it doesn't have to be factually, you know, word for word, correct. These conversations, like they have to have truth and honesty on a deeper level. And once I processed that, um, then it was so freeing. Um, and I, I started writing more, but, um, it was really piecemeal at first. I had, I had journals and I had um, letters. And when I got back from LDAC, my ROTC one month long training course, I purposely didn't take a journal there. But when I got back, I recorded all 30 days, like everything that we did and the conversations that I remembered. So I had a lot to work with, um, but it took, it took quite a while to get a full draft out. And, and to be honest, like I had this, arrested development thing too like the way I was thinking about what happened um was almost childlike and I think I did want to capture that in the book because you know when I joined I was just 17 I was so so young throughout and so I and I wrote the book for teenagers mostly you know like I wanted it to speak to really young people considering military service or or just kind of cap and also capture that that um perspective but also I had like an arrested development thing going on. Like I'm just so still like a little, I don't know, like a little turtle in my shell about it. So it took, it took maybe like four years to get a draft draft that I was happy with. And then of course, nobody wanted it. <laughs> you know, I get a lot of, you know, agents don't know how to, they don't know how to, um, to sell or pitch a story like this because it's not the, veteran hero story off to war and doing heroic acts black hawk down or exciting stuff you know it's a very different kind of war story that's not a war story at all um so it took me four years actually i i worked through all the agents i could think of and then i bought the writer's market your um that big book of all the publishers and agents and i went through alphabetically um, all the publishers, small publishers that were accepting unagented submissions. And you can tell where I got in that process because it's published by Ooligan Press. <laughs> so I got to, oh, <laughs> time was running out. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I actually just asked for the rights back from Ooligan and I'm kind of self-publishing it now because I want to offer it for much lower cost. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, I, I think I think you've 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 set us on our way and I wanna and I, I will follow up 
because I want to, um, I want to, first of all, say, I think it's really important that you wrote this with teenagers in mind. Um, and, and I think that it's a, it's, it's accurate that it's, it's hard to market a veteran story. That's not a war story, even though I actually do think it's, it's a hell of a war story. Um, you know, just cause there aren't bombs going off, you know, that you were at war with the military in a way. And, um, or as you say with the war and, um, and that narrative is hard to sell, you know, bombs are easier to sell. So, um, I really like applaud your tenacity and like, do like continuing to find, uh, to seek and find a publisher because obviously you deserve you deserve like all of the distribution. Everyone needs to read this book. As you and I both, we were teenagers when we enlisted and we heard the whole spiel of military recruitment. And, um, and I'm, I would like to know your thoughts on military recruitment specifically to teenagers and, um, you know, the ways that you've chosen to, um, to use your work to impact that. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your compliments because it means so much because you are, you wrote an amazing memoir too that I am <laughs> now reading. So um, it really means a lot coming from you. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, I uh, recruitment. It's, uh, it's so slimy. I, you know, I didn't, I don't have hard feelings really against my recruiter because when I look back, um, he was blindsided as well and he was pretty young too. And, um, I don't think he meant to just intentionally sign a bunch of people up for a war that they were then surprised by and surprise you're off to war, even though the national guard had not been used in that way. Um, and still people, um, a lot of people halfway into the war, like five, six years into the war, when they um, heard my story somewhere or so, some way, or I admitted it or let it slip somehow, you know, I would get people saying, well, you were in the national guard. You wouldn't have been called up. National guard and reserves ended up being the first people to go. And then the regular army which is so backwards. So many things about the military are completely backwards. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, you would like to be an officer? You can skip boot camp and go straight to <laughs> you know, like learning how to boss people around. <laughs> of course, the people you're bossing around know way more than you do, but this is the military. We like things backwards. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, <laughs> truth and recruitment in the high schools and it's such a David and Goliath endeavor, you know, recruitment um, recruiters get $6 billion from the U S government every single year for their recruitment tactics. That means all of the fancy glossy advertisements and testimonials and, you know, whatever else they're slick little pamphlets and giveaway freebies and paying all these recruiters to come in and, and offer a very different, version of what your service is going to look like than it will in actuality. Um, I just got an email from a professor at San Mateo College, College of San Mateo, 
and she has our group speak to her class every year. And um, now that we're in the pandemic and most classes are virtual, the recruiters are emailing these kids. These are kids who are in community college. They have chosen to pursue higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she got in touch with us because her students were being harassed. They were being followed home. They were um, lots of phone calls being told that, that their choice wasn't a real, real career and that they weren't going to make it. And um, this Marine email um, <laughs> listed, you know, uh, contracts, you know, one or one, two or three years right there. It's BS. Every single contract is eight years. Mm-hmm. And then number one on his list of Marine careers was musician. I'm sorry. I normally yeah. interrupt people with laughing, um, <laughs> but I'm sorry. Wow. wow. Oh, right. Cause that one, you know, like military band ceremonial dude, like he's going to retire and that will be offered to you. <laughs> um, artistic young person who wants to join the Marines as a musician. It's just like, Oh, like, wow. Yeah, that I mean I was I was one of those kids recruited out of community college. I had a recruiter call me at home who had gotten my number from community college. And um yeah, they they are everywhere and and they start younger and younger. I you know, you were telling me the other day about um the situation in your daughter's school. I wonder if you could if you could, if it's not too triggering, if you could talk about it. And again, because I feel like that is something that most people don't even consciously think about is how young they're being conditioned. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't even know the people that are doing this stuff. They, they don't put two and two together either. So my daughter goes, she's in kindergarten at um, Proctor elementary school. And the mascot is the Patriots, the Proctor Patriots, which, um, you know, like right away, rubbed me the wrong way but she's been collecting these proctor pride points whenever you do something good like good work or are kind or something she would take home this little red piece of paper and once you get 15 of them you got a necklace from the office well the necklace turned out to be a military style dog chain necklace with two uh, military same size and shape you know dog tags on there and one had that the little a little drummer boy <laughs> in a blue suit like literally banging the the <laughs> drums of war maybe in some little cartoony civil war thing and the other one was almost like written like an army values card which i remember getting that dog tag in boot camp that had the army values on it mm-hmm. and um too. yeah to see that around the neck of my five-year-old uh I, I, yeah it was it was triggering to say the least and i, <laughs> I was like thank gave you dog tags she's like no they're not dog tags this is a necklace (laughs) you know and I was like oh right yeah like keep it together Rosa (laughs) and I stewed on it for a couple weeks and then I I ended up emailing the principal and who I love like I love this school I love the principal but um symbols of military anything don't belong in elementary school middle school or high school like get stop recruiting kids get out of the schools even if it's a symbol of it, like, what were you, what were you thinking? Um, and she like, and you know, I told her that I was a conscientious objector and that, you know, like that, that bothers me. And I'm, 
I love the reward system that they're, you know, being rewarded for being kind and generous and doing good work and all this stuff, but maybe a different prize could be implemented. And she writes back, you know, thank you for your service. <laughs> we honor veterans in a number of ways uh, throughout the year. <laughs> I'm just like, no, that's not the point. And didn't you hear what I said? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, that, and that, I am so, I'm so, uh, I don't want to say sorry. Like, cause I, I feel like I, it's hard to say, I'm sorry that you had to go through that because like, I know that it, um, it's a thing that we both are so familiar with at this point that you're just, I, could you talk about the sort of the gut reaction to thank you for your service and the, the trope of honoring veterans. Like I was talking about for, for me, for a while, I knew that no one considered me a veteran, including myself, because I wasn't deployed to a war zone uh, like everybody else had. Um, so I wasn't a veteran. Like I'm even missing my DD 214 or my discharge paper. Like it doesn't exist for me. I've even asked for it. Um, it's like, I don't exist. Uh, what? so I don't know anybody who doesn't have a DD 214. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so I'm like a weird ghost. So I don't feel like a veteran and the thing, yeah. Thank you for your service. Well, I didn't, I didn't serve in the way that anyone expected me to serve. I refused to serve in the war. So what service are you thanking me for? You know, like the service of getting out of what I saw as an illegal war, which I mean, the Iraq war is a textbook example of an illegal war and an unjust war. So it's not that I am just calling it one. I think everyone can agree on that by now. And after the Afghanistan papers, that fits the qual you know, category too. So so what service are you thanking all of us for participating in an illegal and unjust war? And, um, you know, I, I really admire a lot of the people I met in the military for so many reasons, but, but some of them did some really fucked up things, you know, like the stories kept coming back, you know, soldiers sweeping civilians' houses, kicking in doors, terror, you know, terrorizing families, causing a civil war and then making it worse. And, you know, the, just the drone strikes alone, like those are just little blips that are a few numbers, but the amount of civilians killed because of our presence and, and all, all the screwed up things that happen in a dirty war. Um, is that the service that you're thanking us for? Um, that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. And maybe maybe it's the, the sacrifice that you make, you know, because you, I think the civilians do understand that you're sacrificing rights and, and, and signing up for a contract, like a contract, and it's, it's serious. So is that what you're thanking us for? That at teenagers, we gave away some our vital rights to be ordered around. And I don't know, it, it, that's making it seem more twisted than it is. But yeah, those are the feelings that it drives up in me. 
And just the fact that like, oh, this is this is the day. It's Veterans Day. Let's all be really serious and thank all of our veterans and remember them on this day because most of the time, <laughs> you know, they're ignored or passed off or or they're just the crazy homeless people down downtown. Um, yeah. yeah, those are my Veterans Day feelings. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for those. I like, I super resonate. They resonate very much with me. Um, and, you know, I'm really glad that, you know, that you brought all of, all of those points up because, you know, the war, the, the way that people, um, the way that we are trained to call our military job service um, instead of calling all of the other jobs in the nation service <laughs> because they actually help people with the exception of, I think, um, you know, stock market jobs. Um, <laughs> and, you know, prisons and anyway, um, you know, ice isn't a real job. Uh, <laughs> I'm going off now. So yeah, the, the idea of service is one that we don't question enough. And the idea of what are you thanking me for is, is one that people get, people get very uncomfortable if you ask them what you're thanking them, what they're thanking you for. I usually, um, I often lately respond by saying thank you for not being in the military. <laughs> um, that's the one that makes me feel better. Either that or thank me by burning down Dick Cheney. <laughs> and, um, and that does the trick. So um, on, a, on the note of, you know, creativity and working through all of this stuff in a artful and constructive way, I would, I would love to hear about your music and um, what the context of that is in your life, um, you know, with, with or without the military aspect. Yeah, um, I started writing songs in earnest, um, kind of as the Army stuff was drawing to a close uh, in Alameda. Yeah, I think it was while I was waiting, just waiting for the military police or, or, or some word from the government, because this was after they had denied my, my application for a final time up at the Pentagon level, which you can't rebut anymore. And, um, I was supposed to be drilling, but no one would say where I should be drilling. Um, so that, that's when I started, I just picked, picked up the guitar and like I'd always fiddled around with it a little bit since high school. Um, I never had lessons. So I, I just like learned off the tab that my mom had written down on all these seventies folks songs that she had printed out. Like you could tell it was on a typewriter too. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's how I learned is just playing the folk songs that she had kept for like from the seventies and started writing uh, my own and, like while writing is is work and stress and and focus and stuff like music is just I mean it's still work but it's just it's it's just so much more fun and like emotionally uplifting right away you know you just play a couple songs you're like ah I feel so much better even if it's a sad song you know you're just like oh man yeah um so it wasn't until I've always wanted to play with people. I always want to have a band, but because of the army mess and, and stuff, I didn't have a normal college experience. 
Um, so I was in grad school and I really wanted, oh man, there was this violin player and I was always trying to get her to start a band with me, but she wouldn't. And so when, after I graduated, it's like, you know what, if this is something that I really want to do in my life, like I have to make it happen. So I, I just put an ad out on Craigslist and that's how I met Will. And we're still really tight. Like he, um, he, he's such a great guy. He's down in LA now and we have dreams of making more music together kind of long distance. But um, one of the first songs we wrote together was Fort Lee, Virginia. It's really about boot camp, but the lyrics and the syncopation just worked out where I was like, I have to use Fort Lee, which is where I went to AIT. Um, and it's about the experience of, and like, like you said, we were, we were there at the same time, the same year. We were standing. The same month. Yeah. June, July, August. That is so nuts. Yeah. Um, what was your first day? I don't want to interrupt you, but what was your first day? June what? Oh gosh. I don't remember. Mine was June 12th. So I'm, I'm going to just put that out there in case it jogs your memory. I was June 12th to August, I think 14th or something. Oh man. I got to look because that sounds almost exactly the same as mine. So we were standing in the same formation at parade rest. Yeah. <laughs> Remember? And they were playing that. Yeah. Proud to be American. Da, 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 da. We were standing motionless, stuck in parade rest by orders, you know, parade rest, where how are you going to watch the fireworks when you're supposed to be staring straight ahead at the back of the person in front of you, right? <laughs> and the fireworks are going off and we're all in formation, totally silent. And then remember they had like, with one of those plastic bright orange plastic temporary fences Mm -hmm. on the other side of that was the civilians and there were toddlers on people's shoulders and they're there you know they were in their civilian clothes and just like having a great time and talking laughing and ooing and eyeing and eating the the stuff from the vendors and (laughs) that's what that song is about like that weird divide and how yeah all those people like we couldn't change our mind. Like the the fact that we were celebrating freedom in such a rigid posture symbolically and physically. Um, yeah. That one was so easy to write with him. He just showed me the chord progression and it came right out. And so that's, that's one of the songs I gave you. Fantastic. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I think that there's so much you can communicate with music that gets so much closer to the truth um, even then, you know, then all the fiction, nonfiction, you know, any type of writing we can do. Um, so I'm really, really glad that you have chosen music as one of your, um, one of your create forms of creative expression. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to communicate about all the stuff that we're talking about. Like you and I can talk about it. I think Sarah also would, would have an easier time talking about it as somebody who's been critical of, um, of the government and of, you know, our foreign policy for a long time. But a lot of this stuff is like, you can't really put it into words. Um, and you can't really communicate about it with anyone who hasn't been through it in words, but once you, once you make songs and once you're able to, um, you know, create like an emotional vehicle for people to, 
to hear you in with, then I think it, it resonates a lot. So I'm glad that you're doing that. And I'm excited to feature your music. Mm-hmm. More conversation and more music in just a moment. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. Your hosts are Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. You can find more information and stream every episode at whatthefolkpod.com. Our guest on this episode is Rosa Del Duca. You can find out more about her at rosadelduca.com. And now, back to more What the Folk. I, I don't have a whole ton of military-inspired songs, but the ones that I did write, like, yeah, it just felt, it's so nice to be able to express in a more abstract creative emotional way because you're right like it's so hard to explain like I think that the work of writing the memoir yeah I was just like I'm not getting this right in a way that someone else is gonna understand like all of the factors and there's a lot of pressure because I've always felt like I needed to explain myself and stand up for myself because everyone judges you like Oh yeah, everyone judges judges you as as a veteran and certainly as a conscientious objector, which they don't understand. And um, everyone has an opinion, suddenly an opinion about what you should be allowed to do and what you shouldn't. And and your morality and your ethics are constantly under a microscope. And so, yeah, that that pressure of of writing it and explaining it and justifying it to myself, like because I'm always second guessing myself too, like why didn't you just, why didn't you just deploy and get it over with? I mean, God, would it really have been that bad? Like, of course it would have, but. <laughs> yes, it would have. It would have been that bad. As somebody who did make that choice, it would have been that bad. I promise. You made the right choice. Yeah, it's just bad, bad choices all around and bad experiences all around. And yeah, I'm super sorry that you had to go through what you did. Like, it just isn't, it's fucked up on all levels. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, you know, it's now been how many years, like more than a decade and a half for almost a decade and a half since we both got out um, the same year also. Right. Or no, I think I was a couple of years after in 08. Um, so, yeah. yeah, but, you know, it's um, we are each other's support system. I'm not saying that as just you and I. I'm saying that as like all veterans, everybody who's been through the military we are each other's support system and it's, it's why it's because we know that um, the government isn't going to take care of us and um, civilians for all their good intentions don't understand. And so we have to be there for each other. And, um, and I think that what you're, what you are doing, what you've done with your, with your book and all the work you do with truth and recruitment you know, you are embodying like the the team spirit of the military. Like you're being there. You're being you're being a battle buddy. You know what I'm saying? Like you are anybody who is going to like turn around, turn around and be like, "This war was great," and you know, we should all be blindly thankful to veterans. They're the blue falcons. You know uh, that that's buddy fucker for those who are not <laughs> familiar with so the long. terminology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh you know so I just I want to say even if you don't hear it from other veterans or 
often enough, like you are, you are embodying the values that the military wishes it could embody. You know, some of, I think we take, we take those things seriously when we're handed them, even though the military doesn't. Oh Um, yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest betrayal of all, you know, they, they hand you this army values card with these amazing values, integrity, courage, personal you know, responsibility, personal accountability or something like that. Um, yeah. All of the, yeah. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Those are values to live up to. Those, those are my values. And then what you see, you know, the actions do not, do not match that. It's just almost like a 180. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So thank you for the service you do every day um, and that you have done by writing this book and by being so open with your story. And, thank you. Um, yeah. Is is there anything, I don't want to keep you too long, but is there anything else you, you want to add before we wrap up? Um, I guess just that, um, oh yeah. So if anyone is interested in a presentation from the truth and recruitment group that I'm a part of and others exist out there, um, we're called Before Enlisting and you can find us at beforeenlisting.org. And now that so many people are virtual, we can do a presentation, a virtual one, anywhere, anywhere in the world and certainly anywhere in the country. And um, if you visit that page, there's that mini documentary that um, uh, a couple organizations were part of it about face as well there's a lot of about face vets in it but it's called before you enlist and it's on vimeo and i have it in several places on the website but if you know anyone considering military service if there is one thing you do have them watch that like so many veterans from so many branches so many perspectives and backgrounds and everything um it's only 16 minutes long you should be able to watch a 16 minute mini documentary before you sign an eight year contract. Like there's one thing that you do have them not watch that and maybe, you know, talk to, talk to some vets and not like your recruiter that doesn't count. Right. Yeah. And then the book, you know, I, I did get the rights back. I'm in the, the audio book is out there. It's, I think it's $6 in most places and I'm going to be putting the e- new ebook and the second edition of the print book up, um, any day now, probably next week. And I'm going to price it at $5. Or if you really want a copy, I will send you one for free. I will. Mm. Um, Cause yeah, I just feel like it's a perspective and, and an issue that needs a lot more light. And that's why I wrote the book. So uh, if you want it, I will give it to you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, and, and I, I will second that statement on the before you enlist uh, mini documentary. I've watched it many a time in classroom presentations and, uh, and it's powerful. It's very powerful. I recommend it for anyone who has a teenager or who has ever been a freaking teenager because it's, <laughs> it's still relevant, um, to know what these recruiters are, are up to and, and what we're, what we're facing when we talk about truth and recruitment. So, Thank you so much. And where can people find you? Um, are, are you on social media or do people just have to stalk you or what? <laughs> I have a website. It's Um I am pretty, 
Like if you try to, I am on Facebook, but if you try to friend me, you've got to give me a, a good reason because I'm pretty leery of who who is my Facebook quote unquote friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, you know, you never know who wants to come and um, just say nasty stuff about you because <laughs> you're the kind of vet you are. Um, Don't I know it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well okay well I hope that that everybody goes to your website rosadelduca.com and orders your book and um, you know gets you to speak to their kids in their classrooms because this is such important work you're doing and um, I will just say what I say to all my fellow veterans which is welcome home because even if you didn't go to war it's still a homecoming when you get out so I yeah Welcome home, Rosa, and I hope that we can continue this conversation for a long time. Yeah, same. It was, yeah, same. Ditto. Welcome home, and I really hope that we can meet up again sometime and maybe even play play music together, do a reading together. And yeah. uh, I would love that. I would really love that. Let's make it happen. And um, yeah, and I, I just want any other veterans out there listening or anybody who knows a veteran who's listening. I just hope that, um, that you'll listen to, listen to all of the words from this incredible human being talking to me today, because it really is a perspective that's not heard anywhere near enough. So thank you so much. Thank you. Much love. Much love.
First condolences to your poor digestive system that kept you from our conversation. Yeah, that this has been a rough week. I was laid out with some crazy stomach virus. Finally yeah. on the mend, I'm eating actual food again, like oatmeal and noodles. Some real, uh, real intense cuisine there you've got going on. Yeah. You know, a whole variety of flavor palettes from bland to bland. <laughs> So, for someone who loves food and especially loves spicy food, like, having anything wrong with my stomach just is, like, the fucking worst. Because I just want to eat, like, well, theoretically I want to eat normal food, but then obviously in the moment I do not want any food at all, so. (laughs) Well, if it makes you feel any better, I was also having a little bit of nausea last week because of different reasons that had more to do with excessive patriotism everywhere. Um, and, uh, so I, w- I was feeling your, feeling your pain a little bit, but I was at least able to console myself with spicy food. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I was just having nausea by proxy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We've been doing this podcast so long that you get sympathy nausea around Veterans Day. <laughs> Yeah, only apparently I get, since I didn't actually get deployed, they're like, well, you have some karmic, like, feelings to experience here, so we're going to lay you out for seven days straight where you'll just lie in bed and sip lukewarm lemon lime Gatorade and watch entirely too much below deck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, isn't it fun when our bodies torture us? Yeah, anyway. No one can torture me like I can torture myself, so... (laughs) <laughs> Samesies. I mean, isn't that kind of the theme of, of the conversation Rosa and I were having anyway, you know, the, where the, the things we sign ourselves up for. <laughs> and as much as I was bummed to miss that, I do think it was kind of ended up being a really powerful conversation, just having that space being held between two women veterans. Um, and I loved kind of having the experience of being a fly on the wall for that interview and getting to listen to it later. So... I appreciate you batting solo at the last minute for that one. (laughs) Well, your perspective is always missed. You know, I, I like I have said, um, many times, I feel like when I especially talk with other veterans, we, we forget how much context, um, people who weren't in the military are missing. And, um, and I think, something that you always you always bring a really great perspective uh, both as a writer and as a as a civilian activist to our conversations with military folks um that is uh, it's you know it's refreshing for me you know i get stuck in my little rabbit hole oh thank you well and i know i've said this before but it's very humbling and um eye-opening for me because, yeah, it still kind of blows my mind how it seems like some of the civilian anti-war work and the veteran anti-war work worlds don't intertwine as much as they should. 
And it's, like, kind of, like, this, why did I not ever realize that was a problem that that's not, like, happening more (laughs) than until we started doing this project. And it really kind of blows my mind. So (laughs) it's interesting, right? Like how, um, how much of a vacuum all of our, our groups (laughs) tend to operate in sometimes. And, you know, I didn't even, um, you know, I didn't really encounter any activists other than, you know, while I was in the military a little bit, there was, cause there was a G8 summit that happened near our, um, base, when I was stationed there, when I was stationed in Georgia in 2000, I want to say three, but, um, but there was not a lot of interaction that I had with protesters. You know, we, um, I think at one point there was one of, one of the, the guys I was stationed with in the public affairs unit, um, or in the public affairs section, he said his mom was, uh, camping it with Cindy Sheehan at one point right before we were deployed <laughs> and I was like really that's like because um to us we had basically had her being painted as like a crazy person around you know all the news outlets in Georgia at the time were very um were very conservative and even as like I thought of myself as a fairly skeptical soldier Um, But even I was really sucked into the terrorism narrative and to the idea that we were possibly fighting a, you know, a war that wasn't entirely evil until I got there. Once I, once I got to the war, I was like, oh, no, no, this is all the way evil. Yeah, that's so crazy because like my experience, which I think probably predates yours a little bit because I kind of cut my teeth on some of the anti-globalization movement protests, which then pretty quickly turned into um, focusing on anti-war protests when 9-11, like, war on terror, post-9-11 war on terror, um, things started happening, particularly the invasion of Iraq. So it was, yeah, like, my perspective was totally different coming from, from a civilian, like, peacework perspective and being... In my own little bubble, I was at the University of Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont. Like, many... I I had multiple Marxist professors. Like, you know, it's the kind of university that I almost, like, think, like, doesn't exist anymore. Like, but the kind of university they like to, like, scare people with, like, the Marxist brainwashing factories. But it wasn't a brainwashing <laughs> factory. I actually think it made me think pretty critically about a lot of things. Including the fact that, like, Marxists will never get their shit together to actually have any kind of conspiracy to brainwash people because they can't get along with each other, so people should just <laughs> fucking calm the fuck down about that. <laughs> like, I assure you, sure you that shit ain't happening. For real. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's interesting how different our paths were, but they all kind of all ended up in the same place. Yeah. Well, I think like when you're when you're working to make the world a better place, like you're going to eventually end up on the same path as other people trying to make the world a better place, no matter how you get there. Um, And, you know, like all of this work that we're doing is so intersectional that it's it's a shame that more of us don't recognize how connected we already are. Um, You know, the way that the way that we 
are kind of conditioned in in like the activism world is to compartmentalize all these different struggles and um you know intersectional intersectionalism is like a bud, buzzword right now but it this but it really is like it's just a big word way of saying we're all freaking connected already and all of these issues are already connected like climate change and um you know and pollution are deeply connected to anti-war activism is the U.S. military is, I think, the biggest polluter in the world, if one of the biggest polluters, if not the biggest polluter. And, you know, there's no reason why anti-war activism and, um, you know, climate change activism are not always the same thing, um, other than that it is it benefits the nonprofit industrial complex to uh, keep things separate, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and there's this whole culture and movement building that seems to be focused on sort of perfectionism and making finding the exact like-minded people to work together on this one thing. And purity politics, in a way, that's just... That's, you know, you have to have boundaries, and it's important to have boundaries, and, like, call shit out and try to, like, create a more evolved, less toxic, less patriarchal structure and movements. But, like, if you're doing that at the expense of expecting everybody to be perfect all the time and agree all the time, then good luck. I mean, and a lot of this is just going to seem so stupid when the world's... I mean, the world's already on fire. There's a fire that just started today and right outside SS Park. And it's already November grown. fire. November fire. We're like a week half out. Not not even a week and a half out of thanks like Thanksgiving, and it's already like yeah. I think the last I checked, it was it was coming on to like probably 150 acres, and it started this morning. Wow, the winds here are crazy right now. They're like 50 mile an hour winds. So, wow, because we kind of yeah yeah we kind of got off easy this summer compared to last summer in Colorado and. Yeah, it was kind of like, well, here you go. Here's your Thanksgiving surprise. Fucking wildfire. So, um, yeah. But, I mean, there's, I know I rant about that perfectionism, you know, perfect being the enemy of the good thing all the time, but it just does really frustrate me, especially when it hits close to home that, like, we're facing some major problems. And clearly, policy solutions aren't helping us. I mean, look at the, the infrastructure bill and the COP 26 and it's like I don't know how you get that many people in one room and make something that works and it's I guess it's a noble aspiration that we have that faith that that can process can work but it's clearly it's not delivering solutions fast enough so what is the solution I don't know (laughs) right I mean I think I think like many of us at this point know that a group of politicians who are mostly male and white are not going to collectively um, come up with a way to counteract a system that they are profiting from. Um, They're not going to dismantle it and they're not going to, um, they're not going to, to work against it. And the only way to mitigate climate change is to take apart those systems take apart capitalism take apart you know any kind of profit oriented um system 
And if we are able to, you know, if we're able to see that and like recognize it and just stop expecting these people to actually have our best interests in mind and start expecting them to just do the bare minimum to keep from getting guillotined, you know, like that's pretty much what they're doing. They're like, oh, how do we escape that shiny blade? Oh, let's have a carbon cap. <laughs> they're barely doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, no, like you have to basically like in order for climate change to be mitigated at this point, everyone would have to collectively agree that money isn't real. And the only thing that matters is planting trees and food. Like, <laughs> and that's, that's not going to happen. So um, all we can do is kind of like stay conscious of that as being um, something that we have to do for ourselves and, and not expect these systems of power and control to, to do for us. They want to start wars, you know? They want wars and they want pollution and they want death because it's profitable. And uh, we have to stop being surprised about that. Yeah. And as we've gradually run out of places to be at war with in the rest of the world, we're now seeing how they're making sh making it damn sure we might be at war with each other in this country. So. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to have something to do with all of that gear, all of that equipment that was, you know, excessively purchased. It has to be kicked back to the police departments um, and they're going to have to use it so that they can justify having it. That's what they say. And it's like, you know, we know that uh, you're going to keep those anyway. Like you don't you don't have to. Anyway, um, I think. Yeah, as long as we stop expecting the people profiting from the system to take it apart and save us, uh, you know, I think we can at least stay relatively sane in the midst of the, you know, tumultuous destruction and chaos. Yeah. <laughs> and I this mean, is how we keep it light, right? I know. We yeah. Well, keep it light. I'd like to just say for the record, going into this post segment, I was like, why don't we try some light banter? So, <laughs> so we started with puking. And now we're <laughs> on to, we're all going to die. So let's be okay with it. <laughs> I mean, death is just another trip, man. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, <laughs> I um, I do think there's, I think that there's some positivity. Maybe not positivity is the wrong word, or hope, or any you know those words. I think sometimes maybe seem a little too Pollyanna, but human creativity is pretty amazing. What human beings have survived in spite of the systems, um, oftentimes it's not because of the systems; it's in spite of the systems. And that's happened historically so many times. And there's so many examples of just radical ideas that have changed history and communities mm -hmm. that have managed to thrive and survive and some that haven't. But I don't know. I just really hold out that, like, as Joe's, my boy Joe Strummer said, the future is mm -hmm. unwritten. Like, it really, there's so many ways we could write this story. And maybe we're just looking for the plot to come from the usual place, what we've been told is the usual place, when really the heroes of the story are somewhere else. The heroes are us. <laughs> that was so cheesy. <laughs> That's such a, like, Disney no. movie message. Sorry. 
whatever, it's real. And I feel like, you know, when things get really dark, that's when we kind of have to lean into those sort of, like, chirpy cliches. Because... Honestly, like they are, they're they're cliches because they're they're profound and they're so profound that we have normalized them, and um, and accepted them and and made them cliche. So yeah, we're the change, goddammit. it, and we're the solution, and we're all part of the giant supercomputer that is Earth. And if we can just like consciously plug ourselves into the matrix, we'll find the fucking solutions, man. <laughs> Or at least we will get to wear really fucking cool sunglasses. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the really cool sunglasses part of the apocalypse. Like, yeah. My shades are all busted. <laughs> I keep, like, I don't know. I sometimes will, like, think of, like, what what will the fashion be for the apocalypse? Is it going to be more Matrixy? Is it going to be more Mad Maxy? I don't know. Yeah. I'm really intrigued. My um my hope is that whatever it is, it's moisture wicking because I have been sweating a lot this apocalypse. <laughs> we need those suits that they have in Dune. Why am I? Oh, I haven't watched it yet. What are they called? Like the silt suit? Oh, I have it right here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You have the book because you are one of those smart ones. <laughs> Would highly recommend Dune. I'm going to read it one of these days. I've got a few different books on my list. Speaking of which, while we're flipping through books, anybody who has not yet read Rose's book, Breaking Cadence, One Woman's War Against the War, get it. Get it on Audible because the audiobook is fantastic and it's full of her original music um, that she, uh, and she recorded it herself and did a fantastic job. Um, and she just released everything again, um, uh, self-published and re-released everything so um, all of the money that you pay for her things goes to her and for her to keep doing uh, the truth and recruitment work that she does and to keep getting her book out there awesome that was a really good segue while I just got lazy and googled that they're actually called still still suits still suits in Dune that's that's the thing that will cycle your body's moisture so you can, it turns it into water. So. Oh my lord. Yeah, I need that. I just need that anyway. Drink your own sweat. <laughs> Dune suits. Can, can someone please start that Kickstarter? Come on, I want to fund it right now. Kickstarter for Dune suits. Because <laughs> they, they who control well. the spice control the universe, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> So I would I think that is I think that is pretty much the hopefulest, lightest, banterest moment that we can that we can leave our what the folk fam on before we go back into the darkness. Yeah. So chin up. You never know how it ends. You never know how it ends, exactly. So buy your friends books and uh fund your friends Kickstarters and, you know, cross your fingers that we all have still suits by the end of the apocalypse indeed all right love y'all
What the Folk is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Sarah is based in Denver, Colorado, on the native lands of Arapaho, Cheyenne, Ute, and Ocheti Shakoan tribes. Joy is based in Portland, Oregon, on the native lands of Cowlitz, Clackamas, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and Confederated Tribes of Silitz Indians. Our guest on this episode has been Rosa Del Duca, whose website is rosadelduca.com. Featured music on this episode has been from Rosa's band Hunters and their album We All Go Up the Mountain Alone Together, their songs Orion, Fort Lee, Virginia, and Painting the Roses Red. You can find us at whatthefolkpod.com, follow us on social media at whatthefolkpod, and contact us at whatthefolkpod at gmail.com. Our theme music is from In a Major Key by Joy Damiani, whose music and writing you can find at joydamiani.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, don't let the apocalypse get you down.